Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. Good morning, everyone. I am here with Dr. Beth Allison Barr, um, and we are uh, in our summer mixtape series. Um, Beth, I am so excited to have you with us this morning. Thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great. Awesome. Um, okay, well, if you don't know much about Beth, Beth Allison Barr has a PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. That's the most difficult part of this whole interview because I'm a big dude. <laughs> well, let me help. I took almost half of my coursework at Duke. Nice. All right. We're back. I'm in. All right. Here we go. Um, and then Beth is an associate professor of history and associate dean of the graduate school at Baylor University in Waco, Texas, where she specializes in medieval history, which we're going to get to hear about a little bit more in a second, women's history and church history. She's also the president of the Conference on Faith and History and is a member of the Christians for Biblical Equity group. Um, Beth has written for Christianity Today, The Washington Post, uh, RNS and is a regular contributor to the Anxious Bench, um, alongside uh, Kristen Dume, which is another one of our uh, summer mixtapes this year. Um, and she also writes for the popular Pathios website on Christian history. Beth, um, I am again so excited to have you here. Yeah. Excited to talk about um, your work, specifically your latest book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which is just phenomenal. The subtitle here is How the Subjugation of Women Became gospel truth. Um, mm -hmm. One of the things that's so striking to me about your book and, and a lot of your writing that I've read, honestly, is, um, but specifically this, how deeply personal it is and how deeply connected mm -hmm. it is to you, to your story, to your family story, and even to your church background. And so most of the time I start out these summer mixtapes by saying, hey, could you just give us a, you know, kind of an overview of your story, let people get to know you a little bit. But this time I actually want to ask you um, to kind of weave that in with how it fits into the main subject of the book, which to me really is that complementarianism. That's the belief that men have been ordained by God to be the final authority in every area of life, including the church, while women are called to fully submit to male leadership. That idea of complementarianism, um, according to you in the book, and, and I, I believe the Bible, um, isn't biblical <laughs> at all. Um, and so could you tell us some of your background and story and then the story of coming to that conclusion and then what happened after you decided to speak out about it? Yes. So I've said this before, but the making of biblical womanhood is really my life. Um, it's all of my life. I was born and raised. I was a cradle Baptist um, and uh, grew up most of my life in a Southern Baptist church. Um, I married a Southern Baptist ordained minister 10 days before I went off to Chapel Hill. And he started at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And even the fact that we did that, you know, sort of thing kind of talks about how much um, this understanding of gender roles was really kind of just in the background of my life. It was something that I knew was there. It was something I'd already I'd already felt the impact of it, both personally, um, where I got on the dark side of the really dark side of uh, complementarianism. Uh, but at the same time, most of the men that I knew were good people, 
were people who loved Jesus. Uh, most of the pastors I knew really cared about women. Um, women didn't preach from the pulpit, but that didn't mean that women were ignored in a lot. And I think this is sort of also the what with complementarianism in the 80s and 90s, it really early 90s, it was really a, a more, I don't want to say benevolent, but it was more a paternalistic. Yeah, type of complementarianism, if that's maybe a good word. Christianity Today just had an article about paternalism and patriarchy. It's all patriarchy, y'all. Yeah. But um, but there are there a paternalistic one is a little mostly a little softer. Yeah. Um, and so when we started, it it didn't really seem to hinder much of what I was doing when I started off. I felt the bad side of it. Hmm. but not enough to make me really question it. I still believed it was true. Sure. I believe that's what the Bible taught. And it really wasn't until we began this journey together of being at Southeastern hmm. when at the time when Paige Patterson was really in his heyday. Yeah. And we went to, I went to, we got married in 97. And so this was, right when the Baptist faith and message was in the process of being changed. There had been some tweaks to it already, um, but it really is the battle between 98 and 2000 that leads to the significant changes in the Baptist faith and message in which we get the family part inserted, where it says women are to submit graciously to the authority of their husbands. And then where we also get the clause that says that women should not that women should not be pastors. Um, And this is the one that's real. So these two things happen at the end of the nineties, right when my husband and I were starting our journey in grad school, me in a women's history, medieval history program at Chapel Hill and him at Southeastern. And so we began pretty quickly to feel the changes. I mean, I, the, the fight with Dorothy Patterson on the, um, you know, floor of the Southern Baptist convention, that meeting, this was all over the news in Durham and, I mean, you can imagine it's because this is where it was happening. These were the people, they were, they were our neighbors. Uh, My husband drove past their palace at Southeastern, you know, when he would go to classes. So this, I, it suddenly became so vivid at the same time that I started really learning about the history of patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that was so shocking to me when I really, I mean, I still, and I talk about this moment in the book, um, but I remember vividly sitting in this women's history seminar. And it's kind of interesting because since I wrote the book, some a couple of women who were in that seminar with me have reached out to me and been like, oh my gosh, Beth, I remember, you know, I remember that conversation. Yeah. And, you know, they had no idea what was going on in my head, but they remembered that conversation because we were talking about how the fact that what the Southern Baptists were doing was no different than what civilization had done since really the beginning of time. Yeah, yeah. You know, this oppression of women, this idea that women belong under the power of men. Yeah. And one of the things that really came out in that seminar that semester was how this never goes well for women. Um, you know, some women are able to flourish in it. These are usually the luckier women. These are usually the women who come from positions of better, uh, you know, they're better established families. They're middle class, have more money. Um, You know, they can live this life and they are mostly have, you know, paternalistic, benevolent men around them. 
Um, But for a lot of women, they can't live this life. You know, for most women in the world, most women are still often married, but most women's families cannot live on the income of a single person. Um, Most women have to work to support their children. Most women cannot, you know, they have to put their children in daycare or they can't afford daycare, you know, which causes all sorts of other problems. Um, so, you know, the, the reality is, is that patriarchy hurts most women, even when men aren't abusive, it still hurts the livelihood of women. Um, and it also limits their ability to follow God's calling on their lives. Yeah. yeah. And so these two parts really started congealing for me while I was in graduate school. Um, I did not make the move though. I didn't really start. I started, it started troubling me, but I still adhered because, you know, my thought was, but this is God's word. This is God's word. Um, you know, there must be, it must just simply be the way that we do it. That's wrong. It must be sin entering into um, into into the church that causes this. So that was sort of my stance, you know, that this is still that if it's done perfectly, if it's done the way God calls it, it doesn't go badly. Um, You know, sort of it's this beautiful image. I hear women talk about that. They're like, oh, but it's so beautiful. And I'm like that's such a nice dream. (laughs) You know, I know that now, but I believe that I understand where they're coming from. Um, And it really wasn't until my husband and I were knee deep in youth ministry. Hmm. And I began seeing how this theology played out in the lives of the girls that we worked with, the lives of the boys that we worked with. And I also began to realize that this, as this theology plays out, I begin to see how it was hardening in the church. I mean, the late nineties and early two thousands is when we see the council for biblical manhood and womanhood really coming into its full, um, you know, it's it's not, I don't want to say glory, but (laughs) into its height, its height of power. Um, This is also when, you know, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology has kind of taken over um, conservative seminaries as being what's taught for systematic theology. This is when recovering biblical manhood and womanhood becomes known as the blue book, the blue Bible, Um, you know, it's original. And so, I mean, this is when everyone is gung-ho on board with complementarianism. And so what we see is we see it hardening in churches and churches that once tolerated women teaching or allowed or you know, encourage women to teach, start turning away from that and start pushing women out. And it started getting really ugly, really fast. Um, And so I think this is when it was suddenly, I remember that and I was like, oh my gosh, this is what I learned about in my history. This is what I learned happens, um, that this doesn't play out well for women. And it was also at the same time that I suddenly began to think more historically mm. about Paul yeah. and what I was teaching. It really came, you know, one of the things we know as teachers is that we don't really learn things until we teach them That's so and true. teaching, teaching women's history from the ancient world through the medieval world. I began teaching Paul's letters within the larger scope of what was going mm. on in the Roman empire. And I began to see things I had never seen before, such as the fact that Paul's overarching theology is about the church working together for the for the glory of the gospel. It's never about 
some people always getting to be in charge of other people. In fact, what Paul's always pushing against is being like, you think you're in charge, but let me tell you differently that everybody's important. Everybody has to work together. Nobody gets to be the person who's always over. And, you know, he's always pushing against that. He's always working towards not uniformity, but unity. Exactly. Yes. And um, so I begin to really see that at the same time that I also really begin to see that women are all over the Pauline epistles. Holy. Women are all over the gospels and women are not playing the role of biblical womanhood. Mm-hmm. Women are not in, you know, what is emphasized about women is not subordination. Yeah. What is emphasized about women is their ability, their faith, and their ability to share the gospel. I mean, you know, Jesus tells the woman at the well, he says, you know, go and tell others what I have done. I mean, he essentially, he commissions her to preach. He says, go and He doesn't say, oh, you can only talk to other women. (laughs) He says, go and tell your husband, go, I mean, go and tell the man that you're living with, go and tell. And I mean, in some ways, I, I mean, that is a commissioning. Absolutely. Uh, Jesus commissions Mary Magdalene. Um, He says, you know, Go and tell the apostles. Um, And so, I mean, Jesus commissions women to preach, to share the gospel. Uh, Paul works with women who are sharing the gospel. And so I began to really feel like a hypocrite in my classroom Hmm. because here I was standing before my students, showing them how women preached, taught, and led in the early church. And yet I was in a church that was pushing women out of preaching, teaching, and leading. Wow. And it suddenly all came together for me one day when I was like, this isn't biblical. Yeah. yeah. And that began sort of the beginning of the end for my husband and I, our ministry at the church. It still took a few years. Um, and sort of our, our goal, our thought was, is we are still making a difference. We are working within a system. And we are making an impact. And I still believe we were, yeah. but it came to a point where we were no longer able to do that. Yeah. And where um, we had, you know, sort of our only choice was to leave quietly or as Jamar Tisby says, leave loud. Right. Right. And even before I knew the phrase leave loud, that's essentially what we decided to do. We decided, and not that we were trying to split the church or do anything like that, but we decided not to go away without voicing our concerns and trying to make a change for the better. And that ended up with us being fired. So, yeah. So there you are. Um, That's my story in a nutshell. I interweave it throughout the making of biblical womanhood parts of it. um, So you can get a little bit more of a glimpse of, um, of what was going on in my head as I, as God was working on my heart. That is uh, beautiful and heavy at the same time. And um, I uh, appreciate you sharing it. it is the, the, the yes. little time period that you had in between, like you saying, okay, this is not biblical for sure. Like mm-hmm. I'm putting my foot down. Um, and when you were let go, um, was your husband's journey uh, inside of that time period? So, you know, as you said, my husband started this whole thing with me and he was, when he got to Southeastern, he actually got put off by the hardline stance he saw there. I mean, I tell some of his stories. I don't tell all his stories. He has a lot of stories, but I tell some of his stories. Um, And one of his stories is when the 
professor in his classroom stood up and said, you know, part of the syllabus for the part of what everybody has to do is essentially teach a biblical lesson. And he said, if there are any men in this class who are uncomfortable with a woman teaching, then just let me know and I'll make sure there's not a woman in your group. And I remember my husband coming home and being like, what if all of the men said that they couldn't let a woman teach? I mean, they couldn't do the assignment. And he was like, this is, so he got, he was upset. And in fact, one of the papers he wrote at Southeastern um, was on female ordination Hmm. where, and he took it from the, you know, this is another thing that we found. We were running into these women who were at the seminary and my husband, because he was ordained and because he was working at a church, he got a scholarship that paid for part of his tuition. Yeah, yeah. Um, but women who were also working at churches at the seminary were not allowed to get that through their mm-hmm. churches they, because they weren't ordained. And he was like, he was like this, you know, and that really struck. So he wrote a paper on it nice. in Southeastern <laughs> where he was like, he confronted the hypocrisy of that. Um, and he, you know, he still probably has it somewhere. The professor gave him a decent grade on it. I said, essentially, I understand your point, but here's all the reasons why you're wrong. Right. right. And um, anyway, but it it still, so it shows that my husband wasn't, uh, he wasn't hard line about yeah. this. Yeah. Um, and what he mostly taught on when he taught on it was mostly how Christ calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And he always talked about how this has nothing to do with authority. You know, he was like, this kind of blows up the idea that you control your household. And so he'd always kind of taught on that. So I don't think he was all that far. He was kind of like me where we were like, this is the way it's supposed to be done. We mess it up because we're sinful. Yeah. And slowly what we began to realize was this is actually not what the Bible is teaching. So I think he was, he was journeying with me. We weren't, it wasn't always something we were talking about. I think it came up to the forefront for me a little sooner because of how I was teaching it. And because the cost for me was less. I mean, he knew if he began teaching something different, it would go South for him really fast. Um, But he eventually decided to make that choice, but um, so anyway, so I, he may have been a little bit behind where I was, but we were still kind of doing this journey together, which I've always been very thankful for. Yeah, absolutely. That That's huge. I think when um, my wife and I have walked through uh, different deconstruction, reconstruction phases around and yeah. things, it's been good to be able to do it together. Um, yes. Yeah. So one of the quotes in the book that, that struck me um, really deeply is you say, the reality is that biblical women contradict modern ideas of biblical womanhood. And I, that that's actually how I changed my mind on women in leadership and <laughs> equality. Yes. Because I had a professor in college and my undergrad, uh, I went to Hardin-Simmons um, out in Abilene, uh, which is a mm-hmm. Southern Baptist. It was a Baptist school, um, and uh, but not, not directly connected to the Southern Baptists at that point. And so... Right. We had to take a couple of theology classes. I was a public relations and advertising major, but we had to take a couple of theology classes. And um, I was a pretty like just grew up Southern Baptist, grew up in pretty fundamentalist conservative during the resurgence as well. And so um, that's all I ever knew was kind of hard complementarianism. And yeah. uh, and I just had a professor challenge us one day when we were having this kind of discussion about it to research women in the Bible. And he gave us a bunch of names of women. And I was like, oh man, you know, he just, you know, like, <laughs> messed up. I'm about to go in here and like find out all the stuff. And 
and it was like transformative. You know, I, I read mm -hmm. about Jania and Phoebe and Deborah and Mary Magdalene and Mary and Martha. I mean, just like, just yeah. over, over. I mean, it was mind blowing. And so I, I would love for you to talk through um, an example of this idea that biblical women contradict modern ideas of biblical womanhood. So um, I really was excited about doing this and I thought, oh, this is great. This is for, I, I don't really consider myself a preacher, but I think I'm pretty called as a teacher yeah. and, um, and I'll occasionally do a little bit of preaching. <laughs> so I thought what might be fun was to talk a little bit about not only a biblical woman, but a biblical woman from a medieval sermon perspective. Love it. Um, so I thought that might be fun. So I'm, I'm hoping that maybe your congregants will, will bear with me a little bit because I'm going to read from some medieval Middle English sermons. I'm going to set them up for you a little bit. So yeah. I'm going to have them here. I have a little bit to read from because okay. um, even though I read Middle English, I don't keep it in my head. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard to memorize Middle English. So I'll just read it. Um, but I want to start with for those of you who want to open up your Bibles or have something at home. Um, I just want to start with a very, a very common passage that I think is very common to all of us. Um, if you follow the lectionary, this is a Lenten passage, you still will often find it preached on the second Sunday in Lent. Um, this is a medieval tradition goes all the way back to the medieval church. So the lectionary is pretty old. Um, there's variations in it, but a lot of it's still the same. Um, so if you want, I'm going to start with Matthew 15 and I'm reading from the NRSV. I almost always read from the NRSV, um, but it's verses 21 through 28. And there's also a parallel passage in Mark, uh, but the lectionary reading does Matthew 15. And so this is what it says. It says, Jesus left that place and went away to the district of Tyre and Sidon. Just then, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and started shouting, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. But he did not answer her at all. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she keeps shouting at us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. He answered, it is not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. She said, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Hmm. Then Jesus answered her, woman, great is your faith. Let it be done as you wish. And her daughter was healed instantly. So um, one of the things that struck me about, you know, I'm always reading different things on the Internet. And one day, a few years ago, I found an article um, by the Michio Alliance, which is something that some of you may have pulled articles from. And this one was from 2014. I actually I found it after that. I found it like in 2016 or 2017. Um, but anyway, it had an article by a staff member named Gary Taylor, and it caught my mind. My, it caught my eye because the art, the title of the article was the woman who won an argument with Jesus. Mm. Um, and it's drawing from the parallel passage in Mark, but Taylor tells the story of the Canaanite woman seeking the healing of her demon possessed daughter. And the initial response of Jesus, as we just read, was pretty harsh. Yeah. You know, this is actually a hard passage to teach. Um, you know, he says it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs, but the woman the woman persists, okay? Yeah. Nevertheless, she persisted. Um, she responds that even dogs get to eat the children's crumb. 
And then Jesus says, you're right. And heals her daughter. So Taylor asserts that this woman's request to Jesus um, insulted his honor, Mm. that even her approaching and doing this in this male space, um, that this was even the, even the fact that she came, called out to him, followed him. And then when he essentially said, shut up, she, you know, I'm not for you. She comes and sits at his feet and says, Lord, and keeps asking. Um, so, you know, women were considered inferior to men, not fully human. And so when Jesus, and this is a, this is a hard word, but this is one that scholars that when Jesus turns, I mean, his response is pretty scathing. Um, is some have called it racist. Some have called it misogynist. And Taylor suggests that essentially what Jesus did was call her a bitch, which isn't a nice word. And a lot of people get really upset about that. But dog, Um, that's like, he calls her a dog. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's what he calls her. And so, you know, the question of course is what is Jesus doing here? Um, You know, we all get kind of upset about this passage. Um, So what Jesus seems to be doing, what Taylor suggests is that Jesus is putting out the perspective of what his disciples were thinking what the men around him were thinking. He is challenging her. He's saying, look, you're according to all of these people, as I'm reflecting, you aren't worthy. He's challenging her to prove her worthiness, which she does. And Jesus looks at her and says, you're right. You are worthy. Your faith has healed you. I mean, this is really amazing. Um, And so, you know, from my perspective, Taylor's reading of this text isn't surprising. Uh, you know, the goal of his article is to show the worthiness of women, yeah. that Jesus recognizes women as worthy. And as he writes, he says, what then are we as modern Christians to do with Jesus's sedition, seditious elevation of women? I like that word yeah. seditious there. <laughs> he says, quite simply, we are to go and do likewise. Yeah. For too long, the church has been dominated by her masculine half, and she is desperate for her feminine side to make her whole. Um, I love that from that article. And, you know, Taylor's not alone with this. A lot of, even Anne Graham Lott has argued the same thing. A lot of folk have argued this. Um, And in fact, in my book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood, I briefly mentioned the woman of Canaan and I mention her along the lines of this article. I call her the woman who won an argument with Christ. Um, What's sort of funny to me is that I've gotten a lot of pushback from this statement about the woman who won an argument with Christ. Um, The conservative Anglicans got really upset with me about this. (laughs) It was sort of funny. Um, And the claim is what I have heard as, you know, the people who have argued against this, they say, this is not a, you know, a proper reading of this text. This is a very modern, progressive reading of the text that is fueled by feminism. Mm, Of course. And my response to this is, well, that's fascinating. Then why were 15th century sermons reading the text in the same way? Oh, yeah. You brought all this um, medieval time. My, yeah. my response is that this is not actually a progressive reading. This isn't a feminist reading. This is a traditional reading rooted in church history yeah. that we can see and that I can see in medieval sermons. So what I thought I might do is show y'all some medieval sermons reading this text for just a few minutes. I won't get too technical for you. Um, So let me just show you. So the woman of Canaan, as I said, she is the second 
Sunday in Lent. She's, you know, in the lectionary text. So she's all over medieval sermons. In fact, um, people quote her all the time from medieval sermons. Chaucer talks about her from medieval sermons. He also talks about her in this seditious way. Um, Chaucer's kind of pro-women. I don't know if you've read enough Chaucer, but he's pretty interesting what he does with women. Another woman I talk about in the making a biblical woman who also uses the woman of Canaan to talk about how Jesus always allowed women to speak. And that's Christine de Pizan. Um, So she, yeah, so we have, you know, the use of the woman of Canaan and how she's used in medieval sermons shows up in medieval literature. So let me talk a little bit about some of the sermons. And, um, you know, she appears in if I and I've done this, I've gone through and counted how many times she appears in late medieval English sermons. And she appears in over half of sort of the sermon collections that we have. I mean, her story is really everywhere in medieval sermons. Medieval people would have known this. Um, And so one of the, and one of the things, the way that she appears in these sermons is she appears not as a woman, but she appears as a representative of Christian souls of both men and women. She appears as a gender I mean, really, as a representative of both men and women. Um, So, for example, one of the most popular sermon collections in late medieval um, England is a text called Festial. I use it all the time. It has all of these more than 40 copies of it exist, which means it was a medieval bestseller. Yeah. Um, So this is how it tells the story. It says, look, it says this story is in Holy Church, a high example of each of God's servants. The woman of Canaan represents each of God's sermons, um, servants. And it says the woman that come of afar to Christ is applied in the sermon to quote a man, a story of a man that struggles with deadly sin, as well as a woman who struggles with deadly sin. So this medieval sermon, it tells the woman of Canaan, and then it shows how it applies to a man. And then it shows how it applies to a woman. I mean, she's gender inclusive. I mean, yeah, this yeah. is actually really fascinating. Um, yeah, another sermon gets even more to the point with how she is gender inclusive. It says this, it says, by this woman of Canaan is understood every sinful soul that is infected with deadly sin. So long as the soul is subject to the devil and the devil leads it from sin to sin, then this woman of Canaan, who is sinful man's soul, must go out from the country of Tyre and Sidon, that is from sin, that he or she, that's what the sermon says, he or she is in and forsake it. Wow. So the woman of Cayman becomes an exemplar yeah. of every sinful soul who needs to forsake sin. Um, you know, the sermon then actually goes, and this is one of the things I talk about in the making of biblical womanhood, it then quotes the Bible. It quotes from Psalms. It quotes from Psalms 102, 17. Um, It quotes from it. You know, most medieval sermons actually draw from the Vulgate, um, which was the most common medieval Bible. But then what Middle English sermons do, because most medieval folk didn't read Latin. Um, And so they quote from it from the Latin. And this is the English rendering of the Latin. It's Psalms 102, 17. And it says, he hath regard to the prayer of the humble and he hath not despised their position their petition. Okay. So it's uses masculine language. Um, the translation of it in this middle English sermon is quote, God 
First of all, it makes God not he. Right. It says, God beholdeth the prayer of a meek man or woman wow. and does not despise their prayers. That's incredible. That's the Middle English translation yeah. of Psalms 102.17. It's gender inclusive, yeah. um, referencing the woman of Canaan. And so as I said, I mean, it's just, it's just really, it's really amazing how this medieval perspective just changes yeah. how we think about um about gender inclusive language yeah. and even about biblical women. Yeah. Um, one of my favorite sermons, and this is a collection that I talk about in the um, in the making of biblical womanhood. I've done a lot of research on it. I recently just published an article on this sermon, um, but it's a sermon collection that was written in the eastern part of England. It's called Longleat House Manuscript Four. And it's a collection of about 56 sermons that follow the lectionary, okay, that follow the, the preaching throughout the year. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it not only has the same sort of gender inclusive nature of the woman of Canaan, but it does what Gary Taylor suggests and what, um, you know, sort of modern complementarians claim is a progressive reading of the woman of Canaan. OK, um, and so what it says, it says that the what this woman, it presents the woman of Canaan as being so powerful in her faith that she changes the mind of God mm. in a way that male apostles do not. Wow. OK. I know. So I'm going to read you some of the sermon because this is really amazing. I quote yeah. from some of it in the making a biblical womanhood, but I think y'all, I just, I get, I get goosebumps whenever I read the sermon. It's amazing. Um, so this is what the sermon says. It says this woman whose daughter was travailed with the devil is understood to be every man and woman. So once again, we get that whose soul will and conscience lives in deadly sin. Okay. Um, in its insistence that right belief determines salvation, the sermon emphasizes how women assist with the salvation process. First, the text emphasizes the right belief, even for Jews. It states that, quote, the Jews that believed in Christ were God's sheep and God's children. And so are all men and women of right belief. OK, so it's emphasizing that even Jewish people in biblical times also um, became Christians. OK, it then emphasizes the women's that women are specific, are more inclined towards right belief. OK. I love this. Um, it moves from the woman of Canaan to Mary Magdalene. Wow. And it says, quote, I love this. It says, Mary Magdalene was the first messenger of life yeah. and of Christ's resurrection to the apostles who had fallen from the faith during his passion. Ooh. Oh, that's that's what the sermon says. <laughs> yes, it says they had fallen from the faith during his passage. Yeah. And so she was the first that confessed the gospel to them and brought the disciples back to faith. Wow. That's what this 15th century sermon says. Isn't that amazing? Um, and then it goes on and says she was the first that preached the faith in France. Medieval people believed Mary Magdalene went to France and preached the gospel and brought it essentially to the rest of Europe. Um, and so she was the first that preached the faith in France. And in the new law, the blame of Eve is turned to bliss and the sin of Adam is turned to happiness hmm. and our woe is turned to joy. Wow. I just, I mean, there's so much in that. It says, so according to the sermon, it was a woman who brought the apostles back to faith after the crucifixion of Jesus. Um, so, but that's not the end actually of this amazing sermon. I, there's one more part to it. As I said, this, this sermon shows that how the woman of Canaan changes the mind of God. Um, 
So it suggests that the woman of Canaan's faith is so strong that Jesus listens to her and heals her daughter, even though God does not always answer prayers this way. So this is what it says. It says, quote, she prayed with great perseverance for she rested not till Christ granted her what she asked. Also, she prayed with great shame and great peace for she asked not for riches, nor for worship for herself, nor for vengeance on her enemies, nor health of her own body, but for God to have mercy and deliver the soul of her daughter. Oh my the gosh. sermon then said, I know it's amazing. The sermon then says, unlike St. Paul, who cried for the prick of his flesh to be removed and God, quote, would not hear his prayer. <laughs> God, quote, granted the prayer of this woman. Uh, I mean, it's amazing. And so here we have not only in this medieval sermon, not only a woman who had great faith, but her faith trumped the faith of the disciples and even Paul and caused Jesus to hear her and heal his, her daughter. Um, so there's, you know, there's a biblical woman that I think we've missed and we've missed it. And we missed it in a way that medieval people didn't. Um, so I think we have to think about what are our blinders in the modern church that cause us to not see women the way God wanted them seen in the Bible. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, that was not one of the names given to me by my professor. No, you were no. the the Syrophoenician woman. <laughs> no, oh yeah, that's powerful. Uh, there, there's incredible material like this all throughout Beth's book, and like I already said, I could not endorse it more. It is simply fantastic. Um, I want to ask you two more questions because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, yeah. Well, you let me you let me preach a little bit, so thank you. <laughs> well, hey, you're just in Waco, so you have an open invitation anytime <laughs> to come down and preach at Restore, anytime you want. Okay, here are the two questions. So one is about Bible translations, um, and the other is about a book club that we're planning to launch. Yeah. Um, this book club led by one of our female pastors after this. We're super excited about that. Here's what I want to ask you about Bible translations. So you said earlier you're reading from the, the NRSV. Um, I teach mostly out of yeah. the 2011 NIV, the, the new one. Um, but by far the most popular mm -hmm. Bible yep. when I was in college at seminary was the ESV, right? By far the most popular. Um, now yes. I've moved completely away from yes. it over the last decade or so. But you yeah. talk in the book about how the ESV translation actually <sighs> came to fruition. It's it's an incredible story that not many people know. Could you tell yeah, us that? Yeah, I've really been surprised by the response to this chapter of the book. Um, not that I, I'm mostly just surprised that so many people don't know this story. Uh, you know, this is a story that I followed from the very beginning, because as I said, um, you know, I, I think it was, for one thing, it was happening at a time that I was kind of paying attention to the news. Um, this story really started breaking in the late 90s and the early 2000s. At the same time, we see this hardening of gender roles in conservative churches. Um, and it also struck, it was also when I started my graduate studies. And as I said, I started reading, as I've just shown you, Middle English sermons use gender-inclusive language, and they translate the Bible in gender-inclusive ways. And so I was here, I was hearing all of this uproar about gender inclusive Bibles as being a product of feminism and of leading people away from the gospel. And I'm sitting here thinking, 
15th century priests aren't feminists. <laughs> you know, there, there's, this isn't, this isn't, and, mm-hmm. and plus, Christians have translated the Bible gender inclusively before now. So I think maybe that's one of the reasons why I paid so close attention to the story. Um, but essentially what we have happened is at the end of the 90s, we have Zondervan releasing a new version of the NIV, um, which is more gender inclusive. It is not gender inclusive about God. It is gender inclusive, simply some of the Greek words that are more gender neutral and translating them in more gender neutral ways. I mean, it's actually very benign. Uh, it's husbands. I mean, I'm sorry, not husbands and wives. It's brothers and sisters. If it says brothers, they say brothers and sisters. Um, it says people instead of men. Um, you know, I mean, men is a horrible, it's an English word that we claim means all humanity, but it really doesn't. Yeah. It really others women. But so anyway, so they change it to people. I mean, it seems or human, it seems very innocuous. Um, but people like exploded and got all upset about this and, you know, claimed that feminism was infiltrating the church, etc. And so in the early 2000s, um, the late 90s, early 2000s, some of the people who got most upset about this had a meeting. <laughs> and I talk about this in the book, they had a meeting to put a stop to this. And they got and they were Wayne Grudem, John Piper, um, these were all of the folk, focus on the family, James Dobson, all of these people yeah. were in cahoots with this. And they got a hold of the RSV. They got permission to retranslate the RSV, um, the Revised Standard Version. The ESV is about 90, 95% the RSV. Okay. It's mostly not changed. The parts they changed were for their agenda, which they call unapologetically complementarian. Mm-hmm. Those are their words. They said that their goal is to make it un, un um, apologetically complementarian to make sure people understand that women are divinely called to be under the authority of men and not in leadership. So what they change in the ESV is mostly to promote this gendered agenda. Oh my God. Okay. I just want to yeah. reiterate what you just <laughs> said there. These men manipulated the Bible in order to promote gender hierarchy. They call it biblical manhood and womanhood, but they had to literally change the Bible in order to make it biblical. Essentially, they do what they were accusing Zondervan of doing with the TNIV. And what the TNIV, the Today's New International Version, and what you preach from the NIV 2011 is mostly the TNIV. Um, They did. Zondervan was like, ooh, let's just just go back and keep those changes and just make it an NIV. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so it kind of was. So mostly what you're preaching from is the TNIV. Um, and I'm very partial to the NIV. It's still the, the yeah. text that I mostly have uh, Bible verses memorized from because I grew up on the NIV. Um, but I've used the NRSV more because I find in academia more people use the NRSV. So I kind of go back and forth between the NRSV, the NIV. And then, of course, I read Middle English Bible. So I read the, yeah. and I still use the 1611 KJV. Um, yeah, yeah, I, yeah, that's one of the Bibles that I use all the time. So anyway. Wow. Well, I think one of the most egregious things in the ESV to me are the changes to Ephesians chapter 5. I actually preached on this um, a couple of years back. It's the chapter where Paul is bringing equity to yeah. the existing Roman household codes. He's kind of flipping them on them, their heads. He's actually pushing back against yeah. the cultural patriarchy there. 
Um, and the authors of the ESV actually insert a subheading to not include Ephesians 5.21 in the household code section. Uh, they take that verse, which is submit to one to, an- one to another, which is the mutual submission verse, and they put it in the section above to make it look like it's disconnected from the rest yes. of the chapter. Yes. It's, it's crazy to me. Yeah, yeah. And I've gotten I've gotten quite a bit of pushback about calling that to attention. I've gotten a lot of biblical scholars who've gone, you know, very conservative biblical scholars who are like, but, you know, there is a break in some of the early manuscripts. And I'm like, yes, some of our, you know, our earliest one, there's not a break. There is a space between the end of 521 and the beginning of 522. But I'm like, that doesn't mean that 522 still doesn't go with 521. Um, It's the same verb. You know, I mean, it has to. So anyway, it's just, it's crazy to me. I'm like, if you are, and, and it doesn't have any subheadings and clearly the whole chapter belongs with 521. The emphasis of the whole chapter is 521. Oh, oh, it makes me so frustrated. There's a lot we could talk about. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Last question. I'm going to ask you to close a word of prayer. I know you have a special prayer. Yeah. Picked out for us. I do. Um, I'm excited to hear it. Uh, So we're planning to launch this book club on the making of biblical womanhood. I'm wondering if you have any resources or advice for those leading in or participating in the book. club. Yeah, I do have a resource. My husband helped write uh, discussion questions uh, for the making of biblical womanhood. You can find them on the Baker webpage for the book um, and they go chapter by chapter. And so, and, and they're pretty good. So he, he's good at writing discussion Mm. questions. I'm not actually very good at it. So, uh, so he did a good job. So I'm thankful for him. So go use his discussion questions. Um, and I think that will help. Uh, the other thing is, is that I think there is a lot of my personal story in this book. And so I would just say not only, you know, of course, I want you to see the evidence that I present, but I also want you to think about how my story might be your story or it might be the story of other women, you know, um, theology has implications and we've got to think about how our theology affects lives and if our theology has gospel implications or if the end result of it goes against um, Jesus. And so I would just encourage you to think yeah. about that personal, the personal effect of theology about women. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Thank you. Like I said, we could talk about this for hours, but I want you to know I'm so thankful for this book. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your voice. Um, You alluded to this earlier, but people may not know that you have been receiving some significant hate from folks who feel threatened uh, because of their their patriarchal power is beginning to crumble beneath their feet. Jesus is using you to help do that. So I want to ask everyone who's watching this, please be praying for Beth um, and her family as they walk through this difficult season. Um, What she's getting that I'm talking about, they're not critiques, right? I I know Beth would welcome uh, disagreements, critical readings, all of that stuff. But this is something different. This is hate personal attacks and threats, and they are just awful and sinful and wrong. And so, Beth, we want you to know that we are standing with you. We are praying for you during this time, and we are really, really grateful for Thank you. your work. Thank yeah. you. So would you close us in prayer as we finish up? Yes, I would love to. And I'll just preface, um, as a medieval scholar who reads religious literature, I come across a lot of prayers in the past. Mm. And I love to collect these prayers. Um, in fact, when my one of my form, one of my graduate students had cancer not too long ago. Oh. And so we collected all these prayers for her. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, what Christians have paid in the 
have done in the past, prayed in the past. And one of my favorites is one that I actually found when I was reading 16th century prayer group prayer books in the Folger Library in Washington, D.C. They have a lot of medieval and um, early modern manuscripts. And this one is a prayer book that possibly belongs to Lady Jane Grey, who, if you know your 16th century history, um, she was queen for nine days and lost her head during the whole Reformation era. Um, It was pretty ugly. And there is a prayer book that is reputed to belong to her. And many of the pages in it, it's actually very worn where the pages have been turned down and some of it's spotty and people say that was her tears that she prayed over it. And so one of her prayers that was on one of those turned down pages, it's a short prayer, but um, I think it's a great prayer for us to go with. So, um, so this is it. It says, God, be in our head and in our Mm -hmm. understanding. Be in our eyes and in our looking. Be in our mouth and in our speaking. Be in our hearts and in our thinking. At the end, blessed Lord, be with us in our living and in our departing. Hmm. Amen. Amen. Oh, thank you again, Beth. That was awesome. I appreciate it. All right. Well, we'll thank see you, you next Thanks time. Thanks for Let's having me.